After the proclamation of the Lord's word, we will sing from Psalm 84, verses 3, 4, and 6. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, what is your estimation of the Apostle Paul? Don't we consider the Apostle Paul one of the greatest apostles that ever lived? Sure, early part of his ministry, or early part of his adult life, he persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. But as you read through all his letters to the churches, to Titus, to Timothy, and to Philemon, don't you feel that the Apostle Paul did his best, gave all that he had to make up for persecuting the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? As he himself once wrote, I work harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Further, Furthermore, who wrote more churches, who wrote more letters to the churches, as we have it in the scriptures, than the Apostle Paul? And who traveled the world more than the Apostle Paul to spread the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, to plant churches in every province? And who loved the church of Jesus Christ so much that he would even travel the world over three times to encourage and to strengthen the brothers in the faith. And look also at the content of his writings. Sometimes he was very compassionate. Other times he was very direct. Sometimes he was very clear with, with beautiful illustrations that even children could understand. Other times he expressed profound thoughts that even his colleague, his fellow apostle, Apostle Peter, wrote once, His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Yes, our estimation of the Apostle Paul has to be great. Who cannot hold the servant of the Lord in particular high esteem? And yet, that is not how the church of Corinth considered the Apostle Paul. Quite the contrary. Even though he did his best not to be a stumbling block to the church at Corinth by not accepting financial support from this church while he ministered to them, but by living from the gospel from other churches where he proclaimed the gospel, also while serving the church at Corinth. Yet the Corinthians were very harsh with him. They did not esteem him properly as a genuine servant of the Lord, as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And part of that came from the fact that Corinth was a center of learning, And from that perspective, the Apostle Paul did not meet up with the standard of eloquent preachers. But the Apostle Paul also confessed to that weakness. As he once wrote, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence and superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. You see, the the Corinthians put more emphasis on the eloquent manner in which the message was delivered than the content of the message. And yet scripture also tells us that we are to respect those who work among us, who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem you very and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. But the Corinthians did not do that. And so it was very difficult for the Apostle Paul while he served this congregation in Corinth. 
He wanted to serve this congregation with joy. For he also loved this congregation of the Lord. But rather, as he wrote, there was much sorrow and much grief in his heart over the way the Corinthian brothers received him. For often the way you receive the preacher, you also receive the gospel. Yet through struggles, the Lord taught the Apostle Paul that his grace was sufficient for the Apostle Paul in all his circumstances. The Apostle Paul had to rely on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and to rest in God's grace, find peace in God's grace, even while going, and particularly while going through these tough times. And the Lord now made that particularly clear to the Apostle Paul through a particular occurrence that the Lord brought on in the life of the Apostle Paul. And this is made known to us in the Scriptures so that we too may learn that God's grace is sufficient for all God's people, for you and me too. God's grace is never lacking. Rather, more often, more than sufficient for those who truly rely on Him, who turn to Him, who rest in Him, who come to Him in faith. And so, brothers and sisters, I may proclaim to you the Word of God this afternoon as follows. The Lord says to us, My grace is sufficient for you. And we'll see three points. The reason for the thorn. Secondly, the thorn. And thirdly, the response to the thorn. So the Lord says to you and to me, My grace is sufficient for you. The reason for the thorn. It is indeed amazing how the Apostle Paul received little esteem from the Christians of his own days. Despite his many gifts, his unceasing labors, and God's evident blessings upon his ministry, he was the object of constant criticism. And the Corinthians were especially vehement in their accusations. They appeared to charge him for indecisiveness and and vacillating, and they considered his words as unreliable. Now, if the things that Mark an Apostle, as the Apostle Paul wrote, were signs and wonders and miracles, then the Apostle Paul could testify to many such activities in his own ministry. And the Corinthians knew that. Indeed, if the Corinthians, if, indeed, if we would have continued with the reading of 2 Corinthians 11, we see how much confrontation and calamities the Apostle Paul underwent. As the Apostle Paul wrote, he had been imprisoned frequently, been flogged several times, five times, been beaten with the rod three times, stoned and shipwrecked three times, been exposed to death again and again. He seemed to be constantly on the move, running for his life, running from danger, from robbers, from his own people, from Gentiles, from people in the city, from the country people, from false brothers. He had many sleepless nights. He was hungry and thirsty, cold and exposed to natural elements. That's not an impressive resume, would it be? If your pastor had this resume, would you have called him? Probably not. You see, the Corinthians did not think much of one who was always running for his life. Perhaps he was an imposter. Such a resume wouldn't seem fitting for for someone we would consider as a professor of theology, especially when we read the book of Romans. 
or as a world-renowned evangelist. And yet the Apostle Paul listed these hardships in his life to point out to the Corinthian believers God's grace in his life. How God was sparing his life again and again. How God was with him each time. Granting him time and again not only deliverance but also endurance to bear up under every hardship. Did the Corinthians not see this? Wonder of wonders? No, not the wonders that came from Paul's hands as he did the miracles and wonders, signs of an apostle in the name of Jesus Christ. But the wonder that the Lord constantly was sparing Paul's life. He should have been dead many times over. Yet the Lord spared his life again and again. Did the Corinthians not see that there might be a purpose in that? That Paul was to preach the gospel to the nations, to the Gentiles? And thus the Apostle Paul must then also be a genuine apostle of Jesus Christ, despite his inadequacies and his weaknesses. And here in this chapter, the Apostle Paul relates one more evidence that he is a genuine apostle of Jesus Christ. And that the gospel he is preaching is the true gospel of Jesus Christ and must be received and believed. Now, the Apostle Paul didn't really want to talk about this, didn't really want to relate this incident, for it can be interpreted as boasting. And there's really no gain in boasting, is there? Boasting often only works in the reverse. Most often it brings on more rejection, more mockery, more scorn. But as the Apostle Paul says, even though revealing this incident to them made him appear as a fool... Yet he feels driven by the Corinthians to do so in the hope that the Corinthians would receive him as a genuine apostle of Jesus Christ, not in the least inferior to those super apostles, that is, those whom the Corinthians considered real apostles by the eloquence of speech and the circumstances of life. And so the Apostle Paul now says in this chapter, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. For the Lord had done a wonderful thing for him, a most unusual thing. The Lord had caught Paul up to the third heaven and granted him to see visions and revelations of which the Apostle Paul says that they were things that cannot be told which man may not utter. That must have been quite the experience that the Apostle Paul had, that the Apostle Paul received. Now, while the apostle could not tell the Corinthians, and thus also us, what was all revealed to him, let us nevertheless look at some unique features of this experience, as the apostle Paul tells us. First of all, he said that he was caught up to the third heaven. To the third heaven. Have you ever wondered about that? The question may then be, if there's a third heaven... Where's the second? And is there a first? And how many more heavens might there be? Well, it's good to examine Scripture with Scripture. And Apostle John also speaks about heaven. Also have received a vision of heaven. And when we examine how heaven is used in Apostle John, then we may have an understanding what the Apostle Paul meant by the third heaven. It may have to do with 
how close the Apostle Paul stood before the holy throne of God. But what does the Apostle John see when he receives a vision of heaven in chapter 4 of Revelation? He sees in the center God sitting on his holy throne, the Lord God Almighty, sitting on his holy throne, glorious and mighty. And then around the throne, he sees four living creatures, a circle of four living creatures, who day and night never stop singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then beyond that circle of four living creatures, he sees another circle of 24 elders, 12 depicting the church of the Old Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel, and 12 depicting the 12 apostles of the New Testament. That's the church of the living God from all ages and all places. It can then be said that God's throne is then that, that first heaven, and the four living creatures depicts then that second heaven, and the 24 elders depicts that third heaven. That's a possible explanation. When the Apostle Paul speaks about being caught up into the third heaven, if that is so, then Paul received a preview of his place among others in the heavenly places on the day of the Lord's return. But the Apostle Paul does not actually explain to us what is meant by the third heaven. And so we must also be very careful with our explanations. And yet we're not entirely left in the dark either for the meaning of the third heaven. It is made clear by the parallel statement made by Paul in verse 3, where he said, was caught up into paradise. Thus the third heaven appears to be synonymous with paradise. That that was also the place where the Lord Jesus told the penitent thief, Today you will be with me in paradise. Thus it is indeed the place to which the risen Lord has ascended. And where all those believing in the Lord Jesus will ascend upon their death. Secondly, the Apostle Paul said, he could not be sure whether this experience occurred in the body or out of the body. So it appeared to be so vivid that the possibility cannot be dismissed that he was caught up bodily to the third heaven. And yet, on the other hand, the experience seemed to be, at the same time, purely spiritual. He simply could not tell. And thirdly, he said, he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. He heard aspects of the divine glory, which he was personally able to comprehend, but which he was not at liberty to disclose, to tell others. This is one of the many biblical reminders, brothers and sisters, that, that the revelation of God is not exhaustive. God is wrapped in a whole lot more glory than he has been pleased to reveal. And even Apostle Paul, on his own admission here, has seen more than he was permitted to talk about. And fourthly, and here we come closer to our, our theme, the Apostle Paul wrote in verse 7, So to keep me from being conceited, because of these surpa surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in my, in my flesh, 
a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. From being conceited is mentioned twice in one verse. That is the reason why the Apostle Paul had received a thorn in his flesh, with which he had to struggle with the rest of his earthly life. It can be said that the Lord gave this thorn to Paul somewhat as a counterbalance to the special privileges and revelations the Lord had given to his special servant Paul. It was for Paul's own good. It was meant for good, not for evil. Now we would so much like to know what that thorn was, wouldn't we? Maybe you've had some Bible studies on it. Maybe just some personal devotions on it. Maybe family devotions. So let's have a look at this in our second point. What is the nature of this thorn? Indeed, we would like to know, perhaps the Lord, because perhaps the Lord has also given to us, given to us such a thorn. And then we would know from this text that we then should stop praying for God to remove it and only rest in God's grace. Well, many attempts have been made to come to a positive identification of that thorn. We will look at that soon. But first of all, we should know three things that the Apostle Paul says about this thorn. He says, first of all, the thorn was in the flesh. Thus, it was not something that came from outside of him, but from within him, in his own flesh, in his body. It may be that something outside awakened something within his flesh, so that it became a thorn. But the emphasis must not be on that outward source, but on that inward pain or depravity or inclination of the flesh. Secondly, the Apostle Paul says that this thorn is a messenger of Satan to harass him. But that's not a good thing, is it? It's not something that then belonged to the original creation of man. But it's something that came into man's life because man fell into sin. Thirdly, the Apostle Paul says that this thorn was given to him. It appeared that the Apostle Paul did not always have this problem. But it became a problem as he ministered the Lord's word to the Lord's people. For it was the Lord who gave this thorn to Paul. It was the Lord who allowed this messenger of Satan in Paul's life. And we now know why. It was to keep Paul from becoming conceited. And fourthly, the Apostle Paul said that while it was a terrible pain in his side, a torment, such that he pleaded, he didn't just ask, but he pleaded with the Lord to take it away from him. In the end, Paul said he could delight. No, not in the thorn as such, but in what the Lord gave to him through this thorn. He drew him, to, drew him through this menacing thorn to the grace of God in Jesus Christ, which was to carry him through every circumstances of life. And so once again, what could that thorn in Paul's side have been? Well, there have been a number of suggestions. As the thorn was in the flesh, there are those who say, Paul must have had epilepsy. And that's why 
Paul has these visionary experiences, even this conversion experience on the road to Damascus. Others say, considering that Paul had traveled through many nations, he must have been struggling with malaria. He had a number of bouts of malaria. When you have malaria, you, you can't focus on your work as well. I speak from experience. I've been a missionary for 30 years. Others say, it must have been an eye disease based on what he wrote to the Galatians. He said, I testify to you that you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. The brother said, these are all speculations. We really do not know for sure. The Apostle Paul does not tell us what the thorn in his flesh was. Perhaps a better approach would be to do a word study in the scriptures on the phrase, thorn in the flesh. But the problem is you don't find exactly those words, thorn in the flesh, anywhere else in Scripture. But you can find a similar expression, namely, thorns in your sides, a number of times in the Scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament. For example, in Numbers 33, the Lord God via Moses told the Israelites, if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and as thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. And that's exactly what happened. Time and again. We read about this in, in the book of Judges. For example, Judges 2, we read that an angel of the Lord told the Israelites, You have not obeyed my voice. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. On the other hand, in the book of Ezekiel, when God promised deliverance to his people, God told them that what this deliverance would look like. God, via the prophet Ezekiel, said, And for the house of Israel there shall no more be a briar to prick or a thorn to hurt them among all their neighbors who have threatened them with contempt. So in all these texts, the thorn is identified with the enemies of God. Yet while the influence was from outside, the real enemy was in the people's own hearts, in their weaknesses. To not remain obedient to the word of God, in their lack of holy living, living ways that spoke of a desire and inclination to conform to the world, and not living in faithfulness and godliness and holiness and obedience to the word of God. Thus the question can arise, did the Lord allow a certain weakness in Paul's life, even a weakness to a particular sin, to keep him humble, to keep him from boasting? Was that the thorn in Paul's side? So over the years, did the Lord allow Satan to tempt Paul to sin in order to keep him humble? What do you think? Hardly. For as James writes, God does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desires, he is dragged away and enticed. Further, after he received his answer to prayer, the Apostle Paul said, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness. 
Paul would not boast all the more gladly in his weakness if his weakness was a temptation to a particular sin. For Paul does not delight in sin. That is so contrary to the Apostle Paul's writings. Sure, Paul knew he was a sinner too. He would be the first one to admit it. So often he realized not what he should do he did, but what he should not do that he did. And there was still so much lacking in him in his service to God and his service to his neighbor. Now what can we conclude from all this? This, that we really do not know what the thorn in Paul's side actually was. It's not given to us. Is that the end of the matter? What are we going to do with all this? No, this is not the end. The fact that it is not made known to us also has a purpose. The Lord kept us from knowing Paul's particular thorn in the side so that we would not limit ourselves to that particular thorn. Should we have a similar thorn as the Apostle Paul did? But how then are we to relate to this text? What comfort can we get from this text then for ourselves? Well, we should first of all note that this thorn particularly frustrated frustrated Paul in his ministry to the Lord. And therefore he pleaded with the Lord so that he could serve the Lord better. And so, brothers and sisters, there may also be issues in our own lives, struggles in our own flesh, struggles within ourselves, perhaps with our nature, our character, maybe with our mouth, or maybe with our thoughts, our will, our passions, that frustrates us, that stands in the way to more effectively serve the Lord and love our neighbor. Sure, it's also so easy for us to boast, isn't it? And to elevate ourselves because of the special spiritual covenant blessings that the Lord is blessed with. Perhaps in comparison to people outside who do not know the Lord. Or perhaps even among each other. The Lord has blessed you with particular gifts over and above other members. Then the Lord may give us a thorn, a particular struggle, a particular trouble. As a painful reminder that we are to remain humble. That we are never to boast in ourselves, but always only to boast in the Lord to whom we belong and who alone has given us everything we have. Sometimes the Lord allows a, a countermeasure as a counterbalance in our lives to the many blessings He has given us in our lives, also to keep us humble and to keep us aware of our humanness, our frailty, and dependence on God. That we are yet sinful beings, even though we are redeemed sinners in Christ. Indeed, we really do not know what the thorn in the Apostle Paul's aside was. But what we do know is that it was very frustrating for the Apostle Paul. It even tormented him, such that he pleaded with the Lord to take this away. That is also to be our response to those things that appear as thorns in our lives and our service to God, and love for our neighbor. And so we come to the last point, the response to the thorn. <clears throat> what was the Apostle Paul's response to this tormenting thorn in the side? This. He prayed. He prayed constantly. Not just once, 
but repeatedly. He says that he particularly prayed about this problem three times. The apostle was so disturbed by the thorn that he sought the Lord three times earnestly to remove this matter. He found this thorn difficult to bear. He was desperate that it had to be removed. How comforting that is for us too then, brothers and sisters. For it's so easy for us to think that when we have a a constant struggle with a, a particular weakness in our life, perhaps a particular struggle with a particular sin, that we therefore can hardly be a true Christian then. At the most we can only be a weak Christian. Yet here the Apostle Paul was standing in fellowship of all those whose immediate reaction to this kind of experience is that they cannot be possibly serving God properly for as long as they are struggling with a particular weakness in their life. But the Apostle Paul would also be showing to us where we are to lay our burdens, our struggles, also our weaknesses and shortcomings. We are to pray to the Lord earnestly that God may take it away. And it is true, brothers and sisters, Due to our fallen nature, often God's dealings with us can sometimes be utterly overwhelming. Sometimes the Lord allows things in our life that, that wrenches our heart in pain, that shakes our life, that causes us to grieve. But then we can also look to our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ, too, found his Father's will so overwhelming. As we see so clearly in his experience in in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Father's will was that the Lord should drink the cup of bitter suffering. And Lord Jesus said to the disciples, My soul is very sorrowful even unto death, to the point that even his sweat turned to blood. The author to the Hebrews also wrote concerning this moment in redemptive history and said, He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Yes, Christ was heard because of his reverent submission. And yet, the cup of suffering was not removed from him. For God had a good purpose for that. But we also know that God did hear the pleading of his son and ministered to him according to his needs by sending him his angels. And Brown said, there's, of course, an immeasurable difference in what the Lord Jesus suffered and what we suffer. But from this, we do learn that God does not ask us to face adversity with stoic indifference. Just suck it up. Just hang in there. No. We may lay them before the Lord in prayer. And God will hear us. Even more so now, for Christ's sake while not always removing that thorn in our lives, in our service for Him, and love for God and our neighbor, yet helping us to bear up under our burdens. God will answer the prayers of those who cry to Him in faithfulness and obedience. Then the answer may indeed be, as the Apostle Paul received it, my grace is sufficient for you. Now what does that mean? Well, that does not mean that our prayers are going to be answered according to our desire. As the Apostle Paul's desire to have that thorn in the side removed was also not granted. The Apostle Paul must live with it as a permanent companion in his life 
in all his labors. That was unmistakably God's will for Paul's life. That may also be God's will for some of us. Perhaps you've been praying for removal of a certain problem, a certain weakness, a certain trouble, elimination of a certain painful factor in your life. But God does not seem to remove it. What do you do then? Do you keep praying for its removal? Perhaps. But then we have to follow the leading of our Lord Jesus, who taught us that how to close off our prayers to our Heavenly Father. And he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. So it may be God's will that this pain or hindrance in your life, whatever it may be, is to remain. The purpose would be then to draw you closer to Christ. That you would drink from the bosom of your Heavenly Father who cares for you, who loves you then we are to learn to live with this thorn. In that very situation in life in which we find ourselves seemingly so unbearable and impossible, we have to learn to serve and glorify our God. For Lord also said to the Apostle Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. What is grace? Grace, according to the Hebrew definition of the word, means elective love. That is that special love God has for his elect children by which he delivers them from damnation. It stands in contrast to his providential love. That's the love that God has for all his creation by which he upholds all and grants rain and sun and everything they need to continue in this life. Now the Lord speaks of that love, that grace, as power. And that power, that grace as his exercise out of love for his children in Christ, is going to come to fuller glory, fuller revelation, fuller recognition through the weaknesses of his people when they learn to lean on this power, lean on this love, this grace of their faithful and covenant heavenly father. You see, it is in our weakness that this power of God is made perfect in us. For in weakness, we learn to lean on him more and more. And then we begin to see much fuller how great God's love is. What an amazing grace he is to us in our lives, undeserved sinners. To his glory, to his praise. God's grace is thus seen and experienced so much greater in the lives of those who, who feel hopelessly inadequate. Who face stresses and duties and temptations. This is precisely what the thorn did to Paul. It created a profound sense of insufficiency. But think about it, brothers and sisters. The Apostle Paul could have looked at all his gifts and his unique experiences in life, reflecting on the amazing conversion experience. No one else had something like that, as far as we know. And on the, on the special visions and revelations he received, and he could have felt strong, supremely confident, he's going to go to heaven. But the thorn prevented him to boast. It even made him weak. It humbled him. It made him cry out, as it were. I cannot possibly serve the Lord as long as the thorn is with me. Yes, how often does the Lord not place his people in, in such kind of situation? Come people, but also leaders in the church. If you look through church history, Calvin in his last years of life struggled with ill health. 
Spurgeon, a renowned preacher, was plagued by constant pain and depression. He struggled with gout all of his life. Whitfield was plagued with a chronic respiratory affliction. How often must not these men have cried out, if only this problem was removed from my life, I would be able to serve the Lord much better, much more effectively. And yet, for the Apostle Paul, the thorn was the very condition for his effectiveness because it drove him beyond himself to Christ, through whom he could do all things. And when the Lord opened the Apostle Paul's eyes to see this thorn from this perspective, then the Apostle Paul could actually rejoice in his weakness. For now he saw God's good purpose in it all. And God's purpose is always good. The thorn was part of God's purpose, and God has only one purpose for his people, brothers and sisters, and that is to present them faultless before him as a beautiful bride to meet the bridegroom in heavenly glory with exceedingly joy. Do you see, brothers and sisters, struggles in the flesh, thorn in the flesh, struggles, trials, temptations have a purpose. Well, then we might exalt in ourselves, boast in ourselves. The Apostle Paul recognized that danger and would rather endure the thorn than fall into the sin of spiritual pride. In fact, Paul is now glad for the thorn in his side. For in his weakness, he realizes that he cannot rely on himself. He must constantly be seeking his strength, his salvation outside of himself. No matter how good a Christian he may be, no matter how many revelations, uh, wonderful experiences he had received from God. Paul says he is glad in his weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on him. That is why he is content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when he is weak, then he is strong. That was the value of the thorn. It made Paul weak. It made all self-confidence, all self-reliance impossible. And brothers and sisters, perhaps through these words of the Apostle Paul, which is ultimately the word of our Lord Jesus, of our Lord God, our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is now calling on you and me to look again at those factors in our own lives of which we wish we could be rid of so we could love God more and love our neighbor more. Perhaps there are wicked thoughts. Perhaps it's our tongue. Perhaps it's what our eyes are looking at. Whatever. Perhaps these are the very factors by which the Lord keeps alive in us a sense of helplessness, incompetence, by which God drives us day by day to Christ. Then we with Paul can thank God for our weaknesses, for they cause us all the more to cling to him, to come to him, to Christ alone, who alone is our only source of comfort, strength, and redemption unto glory. Indeed, then with Paul we may say, when we are weak, when we feel incompetent, only then are we actually strong. Strong in Christ Jesus, our Savior. To him be the glory. Amen.